Spania 82, one day at a time. Second round is almost coming to an end. This is where they become almost de facto quarterfinals in some sort of way because the winner gets to a semi-final. Maybe this format is beginning to make sense. Hardly. Mick Foley, how are you? I'm good, Rob. Yeah, I'm good. Um, this is a kind of an interesting day. This kind of gathers a lot of strands of this mm. tournament. You know, you've got like just the most beautiful beguiling team uh along with the brazilians of course the french are here so like one of the teams i suppose one of the teams that when you say oh the 82 world cup is a classic you immediately think of the french so they are here we've got our and you know to be fair it's just you can't you can't but be excited watching them hit top gear in this in uh, against northern ireland even though i know we will be sympathetic, of course, to our northern brethren and all the rest of it. But, I mean, the French are glorious. And then you have the flip side of it then. You have all the the geopolitics and the tension and the just the, all the stuff that, you know, creates the backdrop to these major tournaments in Poland and the USSR. So, like, it's got everything, you know. And, and all the teams today have a shot at making the semis, as you say. Imagine Northern Ireland, like, are that close to making the semifinals. One win away from the last four of the World Cup. Also chasing a place in the last four of the World Cup. Poland against Soviet Union. Kieran O'Hara is along for the journey today, as you are almost every single day so far, Kieran. Hola, Rob. I, I, I'm a bit disappointed in Michael. That what, you know what, the team. The team. How could he say that the team we we enjoy watching is Brazil or <laughs> France? Like surely, as someone accustomed to Irish football in the nineties. It's the hoof them, hoof them or, yeah. or hurt them Northern Ireland team we want to be <laughs> I, I think seeing through to the semi-finals here. I think that's exactly why I'm drawn to the French having lived through <laughs> not just the 90s but the 80s as well. We've seen enough hoof them or hurt them. Something, there's something beautiful. Even Billy Bingham said it. Even Billy Bingham said it. <laughs> This beautiful team, they're just irresistible. Just irresistible. Yeah, ah, yeah. Yeah. Look, look, we, 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 we can get excited. We can get excited about France. But um equally Poland have excited us in the last few games. Mm, very, very much so. We're gonna break with tradition here and lead with the second game of the day because of our special guest, Mick, but we're delighted to get a chance to talk Poland in the 1982 World Cup and Polish football in that era because they have absolutely blown us away with their talent and their flair and their superb results they've been brilliant yeah especially the last two games i mean you know we said it in the in, in the previous episode the belgium episode they were terrific against peru they carried it on against belgium and as you say it's great to get to chat with somebody who's an absolute expert in this matter poland nil soviet union nil and just to talk about polish football in 1982, the situation in Poland in 1982, how it all melds together, and I suppose how this team is regarded and was regarded at the time. Um, Ryan Hubbard is with us, author of From Partition to Solidarity, the first 100 years of Polish football, and a man I know with a particular interest in the 82 World Cup. Ryan, thanks a million for coming on. No, thank you for having me. Uh, I love talking about Polish football to anyone who will listen, and uh, as you said, yeah, a particular penchant for the 82 World Cup. What is it about the 82 World Cup in Poland that kind of floats your boat? Um, I think obviously in Poland you've got the 74 World Cup team and the 82 World Cup team, which are the which are the pinnacle of Polish football. Uh, the 74 team 
is probably regarded as the best Polish team in history. But the 82 World Team, because I think of the whole situation, what was going on in Poland at the time, I think what was going on in the world at the time as well, and just the whole... The 74 team, when you look back at them, they were quite a straight-laced team. They, they fit into the communist structure within Poland quite well. The 82 team were very much a new bunch of young rebels uh who who completely tore up the rule book for for polish football and it was yeah it's a fascinating thing to sort of watch and see how it all developed so the 82 team in the greatest tradition of international football teams are a reflection of the society they're representing i would say definitely so uh you had you had a poland which you've i know you've already discussed it about solidarity and and all that sort of thing breaking out and and yeah this this polish team was completely reflective of that society uh you had the players like zibi boniek who was the he was the sort of de facto leader of the team probably more important than the coach pietnicek uh, you had players like Mwinarczyk, uh, the goalkeeper, who was a bit of a, um, a rebel's not not probably the right word, but um, yeah, he was uh, not exactly straight laced. Uh, and you had players like Smolarik, uh, who who was a bit of a devil, really. Uh, and yeah, it's just it's completely reflective of the society at the time. Oh, I want to know more about Smolarik. Just tell me why you call him a bit of a devil, because he's a, he's one of the kind of uh, key players that have, have is probably one of my favourites. Lato as well. I mean, we know Bonnex amazing but i want to know more so smolarik is he's an unusual character in the fact that he didn't really uh come up through the polish youth system uh in the way that a lot of the other players did he was um he actually trained as a, a sort of a confectioner uh whilst he was uh, studying he, he was training to make cakes and stuff like that <laughs> uh and he he was playing for a uh, at the time um and but then he got called into the army team got called up to legia warsaw uh but rather than stick him in their team they they sent him to um a training camp to, to just do sort of military drills and, and he was totally sent away from football and basically Vitev let Smolarik go so that they could keep a hold of Boniek uh, because Legia with the army team they could just, just sort of call up players and draft players into the army uh, whenever they wanted and yeah that was sort of the trade-off and in the end uh, he did sort of finally get into the Legia team uh, sort of shadowed Dana uh, and then they both left the club at a, at a similar time uh, so he he didn't sort of make his international debut in any sort of at any level until he was in his early 20s so it was it was quite a strange one to not have come through the youth system a lot of the players go get called up to the youth teams and then the b team and then and then make their way into the senior team but smolarik was completely different and he had a he was quite mischievous as well uh one of my favorite stories about smolarik it was it was a few years after the uh, i think it was a few years after the world cup actually in 82 uh he had this uh one of the referees dropped the cards on the floor and he picked them up and hid them in his pocket and the referee hadn't realized they dropped his cards uh, and and all the time that uh, it was it was a Vidzev Legia game and the Legia game uh, the Legia fans were screaming for the ref to to show yellow cards because uh, there were loads of really tough tackles going in and uh, the referee just refused he was sort of didn't want to show off that he'd lost his cards uh, and then and then there was a decision that went went against Smolarik. Uh, at the end uh, towards the end of the game and uh, he disagreed with it so he ran up to the referee and pulled out the yellow card and then the red card to the referee <laughs> he had this sort of uh, mischievous uh, sort of like I say a little bit of a devil side to him as well do you think given that he hadn't followed the traditional pathway through underage international teams that then having come through the same system as Boniak at club level 
brought him to prominence? Uh, I think it was the way he, he was thrust into this team and it was only a year or two, or a couple of years before the World Cup when it, where he made his debut and it wasn't under Pieknicek, it was under the, his predecessor, Richard Kulesha. And it was it was just after he'd gone back to Vidzev and he'd starred in Vidzev's uh, UEFA Cup run uh, where where they did fantastic in the UEFA Cup. Uh, that, that's the season that Ipswich Town won, won the UEFA Cup and, and Vidzev lost to... Uh, Ipswich in a, in about the third round, uh, but he was sort of the player that was missing. It was al- almost like the missing link, as as such. It's not quite a link, but he was the he provided that bit of attacking flair, attacking speed uh, that, that the Poland team at the time was missing. So he, I think, regardless of whether he come through that group or uh, or not, he would have he would have got to where he was. Just in terms of how Poland was at the time, as you've mentioned, and we've spoken a little bit in a previous episode about martial law, obviously, was 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 in force in Poland. You had the solidarity movement. When you watch this game, famously, of course, you see the solidarity flags and banners behind. I'm just wondering, number one, I suppose, what life in Poland was like, first of all, in that summer of 1982, as far as we know, and also how martial law, uh, did it affect any of the players in practical ways? I was actually flicking through Władysław Szmuda's book uh, last night, and uh, th- there was one little story he tells about uh, when martial law broke out, uh, and he'd had a cruise booked in the Canary Islands, uh, and 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 he was due to uh, collect his passport on the Monday morning, and martial law broke out on the Saturday, uh, and he didn't really uh, understand, I suppose what it what it meant and so he rocked up to the passport office on the monday morning asking to collect his passport so he could go on holiday only to be told there's no passport for you have you not been looking at what's going on in the news it's it's martial law so yeah i think it was i i don't think the, the players were particularly sheltered but i don't think they necessarily understood the extent of of what it meant and how it would affect them and i think at that point at those sort of points when those sort of things happened at that point poland had already qualified for the world cup uh, then it's perhaps dawned on them actually what does this mean for us does this does this mean we're going to get to prepare how we want to prepare does this mean that we don't even get to play in the tournaments at all yeah and like in terms of those preparations did they because i mean i'm looking like pre-world cup pick to check the coach did kind of he did suggest a little bit that maybe psychologically the players might be affected by the time we get to this game of course everything flips in its head and you have Boniek and Lato coming out in the press kind of saying no no like you know it's a game of football and it's the only important playing the Soviet Union to secure a qualification etc etc and Boniek in fact going so far as to say that if they don't go as well as as they might be expected to go. He doesn't want it to be said that, well, they're coming from a country that's under martial law and their preparations were affected. So I just wonder, how much were their preparations affected before the World Cup? Well, the preparations were heavily affected. Uh, I think you you probably have seen that they, they didn't play any friendly games uh, leading up to the tournament against other nations. They were actually, believe it or not, they, they did have a couple of friendly games scheduled before martial law broke out and they were against Belgium and against the Soviet Union. The two teams oh, that they ended away. up playing in this second round. <laughs> so, Probably better not show their cards. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> perhaps it worked in Poland's favour, but they they were able to sort of gain some exemptions to go and do training camps off in. They did one in Italy, one in Spain, one in France, one in West Germany, uh, and and the thing at the time because all of the players were based in Poland pretty much. 
and there, there was only one or two exceptions. The FA were very accommodating in terms of stopping league football and and letting them have this time off to go and prepare and. I'm I'm intrigued about when they travelled abroad. I, like this notion of rocking up to get your passport to go to the Canaries. It's not the traditional view we had of maybe somebody living behind the Iron Curtain. So I'm presuming the ordinary citizen couldn't just go on a holiday to the Canary Islands. And how did they ensure that they returned? And that, and that was one of the big things. It was, you couldn't always ensure that they returned. I think it wasn't probably uh, the same for an ordinary citizen. You probably wouldn't say. But under the uh, first secretary, Edward uh, Gierek, who, who was in charge uh, from in the 1970s, he sort of loosened up uh, the restrictions on Poles. Before, before he came into power, there was a lot of restrictions on Polish citizens and Polish society in general. He sort of dragged the country westwards a lot more, signed a lot of deals with Western countries, brought a lot of consumerism into, into Poland. They, they started manufacturing Fiat cars. They started manufacturing Coca-Cola that sort of thing and, and made it a more of a westernized country and, and one of those things was that the people could travel a bit more freely obviously it wasn't they couldn't just rock off to spain whenever they wanted and in this instance the center the, the government held your passport at the time you had to go and collect your passport and and there were certain things that you had to do to to be able to release your passport uh so it wasn't as straightforward as just being able to book a holiday and go uh but like I said, there, there were a lot of restrictions and you couldn't always guarantee that these people would return. Uh, we're going to be talking about the, the Soviet Union game today. Um, a lot of the Polish fans in the crowd weren't actually Polish uh, because they, they just couldn't travel. Uh, you, you see all these solidarity banners and we'll talk about the solidar solidarity banners in the crowd. It wasn't Polish people holding them. It was a lot of the time it was perhaps expats who had already moved abroad. Perhaps it was foreign people who were sympathetic to the solidarity cause. And to be honest, the handful of Polish fans that did manage to leave the country to go to Spain for the tournament, they a lot of them had no plans to return at all. Um, I remember reading... Um that Gregor Lato himself considered not coming home. Is that true after Spain? So Lato at that point was already abroad. Uh, he okay. was already at Belgium. Of course he was in Belgium, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. he was already at Lucran at the time, uh, as was André Charmach. He was at uh, Auxerre in France. Um, but, but there was one instance prior to the tournament which did involve Lato. It was when uh, Poland were in their training camp in West Germany at the time. Uh, it was in a little town called Mohart, uh, and it was where actually where Poland were based for the 74 World Cup. They did the training camp in the same place. And it was, for some of the older players, it was quite familiar surroundings for that reason. As one of the senior members of the team, and because he was already based abroad, uh, and it was the same hotel they stayed in, it was a family-owned hotel. And, and the owners entrusted Lato with the keys to the hotel. Uh, the, the, <laughs> uh, they they had to lock it up at night. They weren't, the, you know, the players weren't allowed out at night. And it, and at that point, it was the final training camp. And and Poland's fourth choice goalkeeper at the time, it was a it was a young guy called Jacek Jaretski. His girlfriend, uh, she had left the country a few months earlier. She was a young tennis player, and she'd gone to live with her family in West Germany. Uh, late one night, uh, towards the end of the stay, Lato Sharmach, I think, and and possibly one of the others. They found Yaretsky running around the hotel in a state of panic, just trying to look for a way out of the hotel. All the doors were locked, all the windows couldn't open more than a few inches. And he was trying to basically escape. He, he knew he had no chance of uh, getting in the World Cup squad. He, he knew he had no sort of future in Poland. His girlfriend 
already lived in West Germany. Yeah, in the end, it was after a brief conversation, Lato opened the door for him and let him go to his freedom, basically. And his girlfriend was waiting outside. Yeah, it was all sort of covered up. I'm going to venture that the Polish team uh, were very popular with the Spanish crowd because the circumstances, particularly with a movement like Solidarity, must have seemed very familiar to a generation of Spanish people that had just come out from under the yoke of Francoism less than a decade before. Particularly in Barcelona as well, um, with the whole Catalonian uh, independence movement, that sort of thing. That's why you probably do notice that in the earlier games, there are solidarity flags. You see Polish flags quite quite a bit in the in the stands, but you don't see it on the scale with the big banners as such and and in the crowd singing Polonia, Polonia, uh, Solidaridad. Uh, that only really starts to become noticeable when they when they do move to Barcelona for the second stage games. It's like just set the scene for the, for the game because it allows to talk about some of the other players and some of the other stories as well. But like, you know, we've we've watched a couple of days ago, a couple of episodes ago, Ryan, the superb performance against Belgium. Is was that was that like everything coming together? And it just it set the tone. Obviously, the Soviets didn't do as good a job against the Belgium team, so they had to win coming into this. How tense was the game because of the the opponent, and how tense was the game because of the situation of possibly getting to a well, the whole second round, uh, I'm going to be really controversial and say that after watching back, because I watched the Soviet Union game again this morning, and after watching back, I only think Poland had a, a one and a half matches where they were actually really superb. And I would say throughout throughout the Belgian match, they were superb, and and there's probably and the second half against Peru. Other than that. I don't think they were particularly stunning. You look at the 74 team and they they won game after game uh, to get to where they did. But the Poland team, after two, two and a half games even at the start, they thought they were going home. Uh, and it was only that second half performance against Peru where it all sort of kicked into gear. And then and that, that moved on to the Belgium game uh, and they were absolutely fantastic against Belgium. And I don't know whether what the reason for that was necessarily, but I did notice one thing I did see was the gap in between the games. We're talking from one game to the next that it's almost a week between, uh, I think it's a week between the Peru game and the Belgium game, if I'm correct. And then it's a week between the Belgian game and the Soviet Union game. And I, I don't know whether that had any effect to, to, to perhaps knocking them off their stride a little bit or perhaps uh, disrupting their flow and disrupting their rhythm. I just wonder when teams from behind the Iron Curtain and in this instance Poland come up against the USSR, which effectively is, let's call it the colonial sphere of influence in this situation. You know, the the applicable, I'd imagine every time the Soviet Union play another country from, from the Eastern Bloc, they've got one massive target on their back. Definitely. It's... It's always been the same, but it's, it wasn't just the Soviet Union. I, I've listened to your first episode and you were discussing about the Poland's qualifi- uh, qualification path to get there, and it was East Germany and Malta. Uh, obviously, East Germany was the same. East Germany were the neighbours uh, to the opposite side. Uh, it, uh, in the book that I'm currently writing, it's it's I note that it's... From the outside, it, it, it sort of seems like it's a friendly game between two socialist countries, but if anything, they were the biggest games of the lot because it was always trying to get the one-upmanship over your neighbours. And and from a, I suppose, from a political point of view, is it was in a way proving our brand of socialism is better than your brand of socialism, and that's how it always seemed to come across. Uh, the the games against East Germany were were 
almost wars. Uh, there, there were a lot of things that broke out. And in this qualification path, uh, as I said, they, they played against East Germany twice. They'd actually played against East Germany in qualification for Euro 1980 as well. Uh, and during okay, that... Okay, so familiarity is breeding a lot of contempt here. Yeah, yeah, familiarity. But um, there was a lot of controversy in that uh, Euro 80 qualification because there was a suspicion that when Poland lost, when they played in Leipzig, that their, that their food had been poisoned by the, by the East Germans. Uh, they, they had a fantastic first half, and then the second half, they, they could barely walk, some of the players. Um, oh so so when, when, they, when they played in the qualification for the World Cup, there was a lot of suspicion. Uh, when they travelled to Leipzig again, uh, Antoni Pieknicek ensured that they took, the team took all their own water and all their own food and, and made sure that the Germans didn't go anywhere near it just for any, in case there was any risk of it being tampered with. Um, so, yeah, there was, there was a lot of mistrust and it's, yeah, it's, I, I suppose some of that as well goes back to the whole history between Poland and Germany as well. But yeah, it was, um, they were never the friendliest games. Just to set the scene for people like that, look, to be fair, like if you turn down all the, the noise around the game in terms of the, the, the socio-geopolitical situation between Poland and USSR and all the rest, this is a game that Poland are going to have to butcher not to get to a World Cup semi-final. Like they have superior goal difference. They just need to avoid defeat by two goals or more. And even at that, I think we're in a kind of a lots situation. So, I mean, and plus... They should be clear favourites on farm and everything else. I wonder where the I wonder where the pressure really came from because I mean if you look I mean the bits and pieces that I've seen, of course it's an enormous game at home. I mean I was very struck. I have to say there was a, a telegram apparently from the employees at the Warsaw Central Post Office. It was just three lines: "You must, you must, you must," which really struck me as a very it's a very striking, emotional sort of a, a message to send. Very simple, but it says it all. I don't know whether this is true or not, Ryan, but apparently activists back home are also making contact with, with whoever they could make contact with within the camp, saying you must play with a certain style and spirit and so on and so forth. Now, I, I don't know whether that that sounds a little bit far-fetched to me now, but but um, I'm, wondering where, I'm wondering where the Polish players' heads might have been at going into that game, with, with all that on one side. But on the other side then... Is a football game that we really should be getting through okay? I think for the for the players, it was mostly about football. It was going into the Peru game when obviously Poland needed to win. There was uh, a lot of noise from the activists uh, who were trying to put a lot of pressure on, trying to uh, I suppose trying to encourage them. And even at, I think at half time during that Peru game, there was a lot of pressure from from the outside on the team, and and the team wanted to just focus on the football, wanted to focus on what they were doing. They didn't want any of the external pressure. Uh, being told what the situation was like back at home and how how they were all depending on these you know eleven men to to try and lift the national spirit to fight um, their fight as a warrior to fight their fight yeah um, so but I think as much as they wanted to focus on the football that there is always going to be an element of that there is always going to be that pressure whether you whether you try and put it to the back of your mind or not because it's the soviet union it's uh, there's a there is a famous um boniek did an interview after the game and uh, and he he was talking about how how the soviet players that they had no animosity toward the soviet players themselves because as they they lived in similar situations to how yeah. uh, how the poles lived 
Uh, yeah. They were in a communist system. They they had uh, just as much freedom as they did. So there was sort of no animosity towards the players. It was any animosity would would be much higher up. And if they're trying to focus on football, they want to put that right to the back of their mind. And it's funny you should say it because I mean, when you do look at the at the breakdown of the the Soviet team, as you say, I mean, it's it's the various Soviet states, and as you, you know, they're all they're all living under the same under the same pressures and stresses. It's it's interesting to me because you talk about the two types of socialism. Our socialism is better than your socialism. So if if we look at uh, Marxism in its extreme, which is you know not doesn't believe in nation states as such, the USSR really is the epitome of that because it's bringing all these states together and asking that they be stateless as such. They're part of a union, whereas Poland retains its own identity, its own culture, its own customs, but within a social socialist framework. One of the things, uh, one of the big things for Poland, and it's, uh, we were talking about this before we, we started recording, but I'm wearing this shirt. Uh, it's the 1982 World Cup shirt, and it was only really when I was researching my, my current book that I looked into it and I got this shirt, and, and on the Polish Eagle doesn't have a crown on it. Right. Uh, and during the Soviet times, basically the, the communist government forcibly re- made them remove the crown because it was a symbol of Polish nobility and uh, Polish nationality and, and, and Polish history. Uh, so, and it was one thing, like I said, I never really noticed it. I never really took notice, but yeah, if you look at all the shirts, whether it's the 74 team, the, the 86 team, the 82 team, the 78 team, they don't have the crown on. Uh, so little things like that is, it's, it's a loss of Polish identity. And, and it's one of those things that, that, during the 80s in particular they were fighting so hard for us to get that identity back and funny like i'm stretching it now lads i know i'm stretching it here but that sort of that sort of social nihilism if you want to call it that that sort of that sort of intent to crush the spirit of the individual and indeed the identity of a state it's kind of reflected in the football that's played here it's fairly it's, it's very destructive. It's disappointing. <laughs> After the Belgium game, I don't know what I was expecting, but it's 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 a war at the end. You just took me to the knights who go Nate there for a second. Sorry, um, <laughs> I know, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, I've yeah. completely lowered the tone here, but I mean, no, no, you're right, you're right, you're right. I stretched it, I stretched, but I don't care. I don't care. I stretched <laughs> it. And I'm glad I did. I think it's still not broken, but it, yeah, it's a it's not a good game. Like it's again, you're kind of looking at it. What struck me about it, even more so than the Polish performance, and Ryan, I don't disagree with you in terms of the Polish performance. I think what impressed us about, we thought that the Polish the, the Polish team played very well against Italy. We thought that was a good game. I think was the Italy what it was. The game was a brilliant game. They yeah. had a really, the, like the dip was in the Cameroon game. The Cameroon like, game was I remember a at the time we were going, where's Banyak? Yeah. You know, having been so excited by him in the first game and then in the 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 Cameroon Cameroon game, where's Banyak? And And then that's uh, that's all the press were asking at the time as well. That was where is Banyak? That that was Mm. what they were asking. And yeah, he was for those first two games he was completely anonymous almost. And it was only in that third game where he scored his goal and uh, stuck his finger up to the press uh, after in his celebration, uh, that that he sort of announced his arrival into the tournament, I suppose. Yeah, and I mean he's terrific. Then obviously getting the hat trick against Belgium, they pushed him forward. It's, it seems to be the very, the very technical and complicated thing they decided to do with him to get the best out of him, get him closer to the goal. Well, but, it was like, it was a lot of luck in that. As well. I, I say, luck. Uh, you had uh, the injury to Andre Ivan, 
in uh, against Cameroon early in the Cameroon game and that was if you listen to Andre Ivan when he talks about this tournament he ha- absolutely hates Pjeknichev right he hates him um he was unfit going into the tournament he'd had uh hamstring injury going into that tournament he got pulled off in the first game against Italy because he had a hamstring injury and Pietnicek's solution was give it an injection carry on so his at the end of his tournament effectively when it, when he goes down I think it was after only a few minutes in the Cameroon game that that forced Pietnicek to make that change to, to force Boniek to go forward otherwise uh, he probably would have ended up giving him another injection and playing even against Peru as well. That's great insight because, yeah, we were wondering, you, you know, this is the thing, like we, we delve so deep into this, Ryan, and like at the same time, there are so many stories. That's why people come back to this podcast. Like we keep finding stuff and then we find stuff later on and go, God, we didn't even know that. Like that was lost on us. Inspired Amazing. management, I think. Inspired management. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Like the, like the game itself, it, as I say, it's just bleak. I don't, I'm not sure what you think, lads. I'm not sure who's, who's making it bleak. Is it like the Soviets are clearly like we were also wowed by the Soviets in the first phase, right? Nick, They've what, just, what happened they, to them? They've gone off a cliff and I don't know what's happened, Rob. Like, they're I mean, one they of were, our favourite first round teams. Yeah. Like, they're probably in the they top were, five. Yeah. There yeah. was a 10 day break. We talked about the break. We gave, like, there was a 10 day break between their game against Scotland, which was a terrific match. And then their game against Belgium in the previous, which they win one nil, but it's poor. And then they come here and they have to chase this game and they no more chase it now. I mean, who's like the Poles are doing all the attacking in the last 20 minutes. I mean, if anyone's going to score, it's Poland. It, it does make you think, though, because clearly we're fixated on Poland here. Um, but there's probably stories in that Soviet team that haven't been told yet. And I would say for, for the kind of dip in form that we've seen, the sign is there that that's an unhappy camp all of a sudden, like something's happened. Yeah. No question about it. And it's very hard to put your finger on it, even years later, okay, when you go in to look to see what what went on. It's very, very hard to divine exactly what went on. Sergei Baltica and, and Gavrilov, who we've loved, like Gavrilov, who we've loved through this tournament, uh, they stress, I mean, as we've mentioned before, it was a, it was a three-coach uh, deal, if you like. You've got Lobanovsky, Beskov, and Danano Tbilisi's head coach, Atelkatsi, together. It's a kind of a it's a kind of a political uh, arrangement for the three main clubs at the time in the Soviet Union. Uh, it's a it's, no, things it, like it's that. a super band. It's or a super, super band, group. Yes. Yeah, it's an eighties yeah. super group. They're they're the air supply of the nineteen eighty two World Cup. Like so, it seems you you're kind of waiting for the cracks to appear. But even when they talk about, as I mentioned, Balikan Beskov or sorry, Balikan Gavrilov. They still feel, like Gavrilov would, would have said years afterwards, that he felt the team for the match against Poland that was, was set by Lobanovsky. But he would say that there was only four out-and-out attacking players in the team. In Gavrilov's view, the Polish team was set by Lobanovsky, not Beskov, and it was too negative. On the flip side, Baltica uh, reckons that he enjoyed playing under these guys. He see enjoyed Beskov in particular. And this is now Baltica coming from the other side. He's coming from... He's from a Dynamo Kiev player, yeah. 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 He's coming from the Lobanovsky side. So he said Beskov had high standards, head up, playing technical, fast, beautiful football. It was different. And he's, he's speaking, obviously, after he said, in my coaching, I tried to use a mixture of the two approaches. So he didn't... like. Some of them didn't mind, but look, I think the best approximation at this point we can make is that there is a clash of styles among the coaches and it's not, it's, Lobanovsky seems to be the one, if we believe Gavrilov, 
that seems to have won out. I would I would add in there though as well. I, I can't remember who I, who I read the interview with, but one of the Polish players, having spoken to one of the Soviet players after, uh, the Soviet player said that the most important for them, the most important thing for them was that they didn't lose the match, because that would have been a shame. That would have been a shame on them as 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 a team. So I think they were. They were perhaps very negative in that respect, in a mental respect as well. Paralyzed by fear. Paralyzed perhaps. by fear. Absolutely. Well, that's interesting because, I mean, when you look at how it's reported back in the Soviet Union. Um, just hold on there. Mix opening up Pravda. Uh, well, funny enough, now we should mention Pravda. I didn't quite get the copy of Pravda from the following day. Wouldn't have mattered anyway if we did. Okay. So just, just looking at some of the coverage. Now, I don't have the copy of Pravda from the following day, but it wouldn't have mattered anyway because the match didn't make the deadline. So it wasn't reported in Pravda the following day. Uh, TASS, the news agency, and Radio Moscow just reported that the game ended as a nil-all draw. It didn't report the consequences of the nil-all draw. Uh, but the Soviet commentator apparently, at the end, it's uh, it's 0-0, zero, zero, it's, it's, it's just dying out here. Our soccer players played without teeth today, which uh, which is a fair approximation, I would have to say. I was like, I mean, for a team that we certainly would have said, I mean, and I think it was at the time it was believed as well that they were dark horses at least get to a semi final, maybe the final. They have really gone out very, very, very limply. And the shame is, Mick, like, like the team that we that impressed us so much, Scotland, they would have added so much more to this group. Oh, like without a sh- well, looking back now, I mean, we wouldn't have argued you, the USSR going through from that group given the quality of the against, games against that Brazil, Brazil and Scotland, Scotland yeah, and yeah, the Soviet Union produced between the three of them. But looking now, I mean, Scotland against Poland would have been a hell of a bun fight. Oh, I mean, yeah. can you imagine? Chaos! Oh, yeah. <laughs> in Barcelona! Oh, jeez. I tell you what, I tell you what, the Scottish lads would have brought solidarity flags with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I think the other thing with the Scots is, like, we've seen effectively paralysis infect the Soviet team. I think players that were out of form for Scotland in the first round, your Kenny Dalgleish's, yeah. they'd have been superstars in this. Could you imagine Kenny Dalgleish going toe-to-toe with a team that whose totem was Boniak? Yeah. yeah. He'd want to, he'd like, he, he, Kenny likes to share a headline. The, the interesting about the solidarity banners at the game, so... The police go in to try to take down the banners, which I think they're su- I don't know, are they successful in doing so? Did they yeah, take it's them down? after about sixty or seventy minutes, though. They're, they're up for yeah. quite a while. The the story afterwards is interesting. About no one sort of takes responsibility for telling them to go in, do they? It's it's a really strange one. It's because they are up for so long, and as I think you mentioned it on on one of the previous podcasts as well that obviously you had the whole situation with with Polish TV uh, it was on a uh, I think three or four minute three delay. minute delay yeah yeah just so that they can and and that was farcical throughout the whole tournament as well uh, because you had the Polish TV they pushed a button and it would insert shots of Brazilian fans celebrating a goal uh and it was it was no. bizarre and i think uh, and it, <laughs> that worked that wow. was that was what that was what it was like so people watching back in poland they would they would see they'd be watch the ball go out for a goal kick and then all of a sudden these <laughs> south american fans celebrating and i suppose in a way that's when they knew that something was going on in the stadium that that they weren't supposed to see and i, I suppose in a way that was a a point of celebration for them because something was happening that that 
that the government and the and the communists weren't happy with. As as a message from the outside world that we know what's happening, that must have been so uplifting to people because their state is so concerned about what they might learn that they tell them people are learning something. You had at the time so many solidarity activists in prison. They were all arrested uh, with the breakout of martial law. Lech Wałęsa was in was in incarcerment then, um, and and those uh, the, there is a great documentary in in Poland uh, about about all of this, about the World Cup, and about these solidarity activists who were, who were incarcerated at the time, and and how they followed the tournament, uh, and and they talk about that. They talk about they knew something was up, and it, it was a massive thing for them. It, it showed that they were they were getting the support from all around the world. Just to put a bit of meat on the bones of this, the banner being taken down, right? The head of the, the police in Barcelona was very disturbed by all of this and more disturbed, I'd say, by the media asking him questions about it, as you would be. So Joaquin Sanchez Vizcano said the police had orders to take down any banner supporting separatist causes within Spain, right? But no orders to take down any banners relating to that and going on abroad. So the suggestion was that Soviet TV had somehow contacted FIFA to, and forced them to act. Now, FIFA, the following day again in the papers, deny any involvement, but our old friend, well, our old friend, our new friend, I just mentioned him 10 seconds ago, Vizcano, did confirm contact between the city government and FIFA during the game. Someone somewhere is pulling a string to try and get this to happen. Can I just say, Ryan came on the show and said, uh, yeah, I'm wearing the Poland jersey. And I was like, mm, which one's that? And he's the 82 World Cup. And I was like, well, hang on a minute. I did not see that jersey before. And Ryan, you've explained. Midway through the World Cup, they get a different white jersey. Yeah, so it's after the Soviet Union game. Uh, they were they started uh, against Italy and against Cameroon in, uh, in the original white shirt, which I, th- I think, I can't remember who it was, alluded to it being like a knitted jumper. Uh, obviously not very conducive to the Spanish summer heat. So, yeah, after the Soviet Union game, when they've got to play against Italy again, they need a new white shirt. They, they've managed to source another one from from Adidas, which is actually rather reminiscent of the one that the Soviets uh, wore yeah. against Poland. It's, it's, it's got the red pinstripes on it. I think they're just trying to outdo Italy in the style stakes. I, it's a very snazzy jersey, to be fair. It's I mean, interesting that you say... Proud to be bon- married in that. Boniak swaps jerseys and ends up in an interview after the game on the, on the couch. I don't know how Polish TV had the, the, the budget to set up a, like a couch with a table and everything in the new camp, but they did. And actually the jersey is very similar to the one you're wearing, actually. It just struck me that, all right, uh, the, the Soviet jersey that he had swapped. But yeah, you caught that interview too. It was great TV coverage. They wanted to show that. They wanted to show Boniak in the spoils of war. He's, uh, he's, uh, he's, he's taking the Soviet shield and donning it for television. And that, and that was his excuse. Uh, he, he did it against Peru as well uh there was a there was a interview in in the same sort of studio uh where he was wearing the peruvian shirt but that wearing the soviet union shirt caused hell back in poland he was not he was not the nation's favorite person at that point uh wearing a soviet shirt is is, it was probably the worst thing he could have done he obviously he was asked about it in i think in the pre uh, in the post-match interview as well it was yeah, as you said, it was his uh, spoil of war. It was his, it was his scalp, shall we say? What, what what was the reaction to the victory back home in Poland? How did people did people celebrate? What was it? Yeah, it was it was a win. 
it was it might as well have been a two three four nil win it was yeah they'd beaten the soviets as far as they were concerned there was i don't know what country it was in uh there was a headline uh which i think it said russia nil poland nil soviet union nil solidarity won and it was uh-huh. that that was it was a win it was regardless of what the score on the pitch as long as it wasn't a defeat it was a win. And actually, in terms of the expectation, uh, the footballing expectation on the team, getting to the World Cup semi-final, was that what people hoped, expected? Did it exceed what people thought they might be capable of? I think it exceeded, uh, to be honest. Obviously, they reached the, the semi-finals and, and finished third in 74. 78 was, th- 78 was the team. That was the Poland team. That was the best players from 74 meshed with these emerging stars like Boniek, uh, Terlecki, I don't even remember who else would have been coming through at that time, but that that was the team and that was so uh, such a disappointment to, to go out in the second round. Uh, so this, coming into the 82 tournament, especially on the back of not having proper preparations, there was a lot of nervousness and a lot of pessimism. Uh, so, so to do what they did, it was, I think... Uh, it just lifted the nation. It was totally beyond what was expected, and it just lifted the nation completely. I just actually, just on a sideline question that I probably should have asked earlier on, in relation to Lato and Boniek, in ways, as you said, they would have been together at seventy-eight as well. I suppose there is an element of passing the torch here a little bit in terms of influence on the team and so on. I'd cert- and certainly in terms of their greatness as players. Um, how did they get on? Were they? What was their relationship like? Because they seem to be very close on the pitch in terms of when things work. It's when those two are in are in cahoots. I think they were relatively close, uh, as you said. Uh, Lato was f- more of from the old guard. He was more of uh, Kazimierz Gorski's. Uh, he was one of his his eagles. Whereas Boniek coming through at the seventy eight World Cup was the youngster who was the, the rebellious one who who was uh, he didn't really get on with the older players, uh, but. Boniek was the leader of the team, no matter how experienced uh, Lato was, no matter how much uh, Jmuda was the captain, Boniek was the leader of the team. Lato didn't have the personality to lead the team, I, I don't think. He was, uh, not that he wasn't respected, but he just didn't hold that same gravitas as, as Boniek did. So I think there was I think there was an element of mutual respect for each other there. And... and Lato was Lato had the golden boot at, at seventy four. He was he was already a bronze medalist. Or well, I say bronze medalist. It was a silver medal at the World Cup. It was a silver if you finished third. But yeah, it's and they they seem to play well together. As you said, they and they achieved something during that uh, during this tournament, the eighty two tournament, that that no one expected of them. And I think that 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 did put them quite close. Uh, there was there was a one incident going back to, uh, I think, 79 in qualification, uh, again, the Euro 80, where they were both suspended from the national team at the same time due to a scandal uh, where they were uh, ribbing journalists uh, who were being quite intrusive and they were both uh, part of that. And I, th- I think there was perhaps a bit of... Um, uh, they, they both had the same experience so there together uh, they were both uh, sort of picked on by uh, by the Polish FA uh, because they were the more senior players and I think because of that perhaps they, they had that closeness and that and that respect for each other you mentioned while you were talking about them what I would describe as the third arm of the Holy Trinity there and he's the one we know least about over the course of this and that's Jmuda Jmuda's quiet he's 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 always described as quiet uh Andrzej even in his book I think he says that he's he doesn't speak 
He's, he speaks even less on the pitch than he does off of it. And he, he does seem, uh, in a way, an odd choice to be captain of the team. Not not for the fact that he's he hasn't got the experience and, and the respect of the players, but because he isn't a very vocal player. And you expect your captain to be the one telling his charges what to do, but, but Schmuder doesn't really seem to be that person. He, he does have that respect. And, and coming into the tournament, uh, it was decided... Uh, the captain of the team would be the player with the most appearances in the national team who wasn't already playing abroad. Uh-huh. And I think it was, in a way, it was perhaps a, a way to ensure that Lato didn't get the captaincy <laughs> um, because he was the most experienced player. He was, uh, his Belgium game was his 100th uh, cap for the Polish national team, whereas Smuda was on about 70-something. So, so yeah, that, that almost seems like the excuse to not give Lato the captaincy and, and give it to someone else instead. Well, I tell you what, Lato did get, lads, and you're gonna like this. This is this is like something out of this is like high end bullseye, right? Yeah. He got because this is his fourth World Cup, right? Are we getting tankards? Right? Third, is World it fourth? Third, Third World, World, World Cup. Cup. Excuse me. He to mark the occasion. Apparently, he got a beautiful gift. He he described from the glassworks in Krojno. A crown of crystals with seven balls in it. The largest one in the middle and three on the sides. And the inscription for the Rifleman King of the Tenth World Cup. A beautiful thing, he said. But that's not all. Because I also have a set of 12 glasses for different drinks, each with a monogram of LG. I thought that was a lovely, lovely touch by the, the glassworks in Krajno. That's not something, you know. That's, there's a practical element to that now. Yeah, if you ever need anyone to do an FA Cup draw, he'll search out. He's, he's got the glassware <laughs> and, and all the balls. Yeah. <laughs> and let's be honest, it was a time when World Cup draws and draws in general were badly done, but we won't go back over that again. Um, just be, Ryan, as we bring this to a close, there's one key point here. So we're in a day, and you knew that about this podcast. We're not specifically talking about the semi-finals until we come across the semi-final. Um, but Boniak gets suspended here. Like, you know what was the feeling at the moment we we've experienced it in the world of football on so many occasions that kind of bittersweet moment where a player is out but the team have won this is his gaza moment isn't it uh it but is, without, yes, but without it the tears um, yes fair point yeah it's... Does, but, but but does boniak have a jimmy five bellies to turn to ryan <laughs> I, I don't as not as far as i'm aware no um <laughs> obviously it was the big thing, I think, was that it forced Pietniczek to change his team. Uh, he, the big thing in Poland was uh, not not just during this tournament, but during previous tournaments, is that you don't change a winning team. And although they didn't win necessarily against the Soviet Union, as we've discussed, it it was might as well have been a win. Um, but it forced him to change the team. And that, I think, potentially had the effect of upsetting the balance of the team. And there are a lot of uh, internal things, with, uh, particularly with Andre Sharmach and him not being involved and, and a lot of controversy as to why he wasn't involved uh, when he perhaps should have been. Uh, Andre Sharma being... So Sharmach was obviously... And based at Augs Air, so would the fact there, that he, he was, was overse- overseas have been... Or, well out of the country so being an issue obviously he was in the squad uh he, again he was another player who Pietnicek did, just didn't seem to like he was forced to call him up to the squad uh for, for qualification because uh Boniek uh Terlecki and Winarczyk were all suspended 
Uh, so he was forced to call up Lato, Sharmach and Tomaszewski, uh, which, who were all playing abroad at the time. I think because, I, d- I don't know whether it was just something to do with Sharmach's personality, but, but there was certainly something in it, perhaps, that Pietniczek was a bit jealous of Sharmach earning money abroad. There's, there's a famous quote that Sharmach said about Pietniczek that, that Pietniczek told him. He said, Andre, you live abroad and earn loads of dollars, whereas I'm building a house and I can't even afford tiles on my roof. And and there was almost this jealousy, uh, it, or, or so Sharmach seems to think. And, and when uh, Poland qualified for the World Cup against East Germany, Sharma, uh, sorry, Pietniczek came out and said, all of you players here, you will all be going to the World Cup. And that included Sharmak. It also included Tomaszewski, who turned around and said, I don't want to go to the World Cup. I'm announcing my international retirement. So, but it, but it felt Sharmak was, he was given the opportunity to go to the World Cup. But before the tournament, Pietniczek supposedly turned around to him and said, you're coming, but you're not going to play. And that is why we never saw him during the tournament, really, until until right at the end of the tournament. Sharmak had a, a knack for scoring against Italy, particularly as well. I think going into the uh, into the semi-final, he thought Boniek suspended, Ivan's injured. This is my shot. This is where this is where I come in. And as I'm sure you will discuss, that wasn't necessarily the case. And the, and the critical point here is that he's. He's a cult hero at Auxerre. You know, now this is not one of the premier clubs in France, but they always produce wonderful players. And he's one that at that time is the darling of the fans. He was he was playing with a lot of Polish players. He was playing with Miroslav Klose's dad, uh, uh, Josef Klose. He was playing with him at Auxerre as well. Uh, Guy Roux, at the time, the Auxerre coach, he, was, he had a... Uh, a pawn shop for signing Polish players. Sharmak uh, was uh, just one in succession. There was Henrik Wieczorek, uh Pavel Janas later as well, part of the part of the '82 squad. Um, he later signed for Oxair as well. Uh, and yeah, he was. I think Oxair they they had a bit of a, a thing for Polish players at the time. And yeah, he was he was on fire at the time. We can't let you go, Ryan, without in our alternate wall chart allowing you to tell us what would have happened if Boniek had been available for the semi-final? I think that's that's always been the big question. That's everybody in Poland always wonders what would have happened if Boniek would have been suspended, uh, if he hadn't have been suspended. You read what uh, people like Munarczyk have said and what Jmuda has said and what Lato has said and what, what Boniek himself has said and they think that they would have had a chance. They would have had they would have had at least a bit more attacking noose, shall we say. Um, he might not have been as popular at Juve. Perhaps not. Obviously, he'd already signed for Juve at that time as well. He signed before the tournament, and, and that was the whole thing in the early rounds was that a lot of the criticism towards him was that he's already signed there, he's got his money, he's not interested anymore. But I, I, I don't think that necessarily would have been the case. But realistically, it seems like the Soviet Union and the victory against the Soviet Union was the, the nadir of their tournament. That was the peak. And and it was always going to sort of... You couldn't really top that. That, that, was, that was the big win. That was every, made everybody happy back at home. And yes, you know, it would have been even more amazing if they'd have uh, got to the final. But it just sort of... It just sort of never really looked like it really would happen. As, as we said, we they'd had that 135 minutes against Peru and Belgium. That was their, I suppose, performance peak. 
uh, and it was sort of tailed off against the Soviet Union and it was always never really looked like going any further than that. Brian, it's been an absolute pleasure. Loved it. Uh, really, really have. And we could keep going because there's so much more I want to ask you. I, like, I, like, I don't even know. Do you know the commentator we were listening to there? Because he sounds oh, like an absolute legend. Is he a legend? He's a legend. Jan Krzyzewski. Yeah. Uh, right, okay. Jan Krzyzewski. Uh, he is probably the most famous Polish commentator of all time. Commentated on European Cups when uh, Manchester United and Gordon Zabrze played in the 1968 European Cup. He was a commentator then. Um, right. uh, one of the horrible stories about this World Cup is uh, he was ill during the World Cup and he died a few months after the World Cup. Ah. It was his last tournament uh, as, as a commentator. Uh, he was, yeah, he was... I think rushed to hospital not long after the team returned to to Poland. No way. And yeah, he. Uh, but, but there's something romantic as well about the fact that he's so happy. He's like, yeah. and he's delivering such an amazing commentary. Yeah, he's he did the '74 World Cup and the whole thing. He did the '72 Olympics, uh, and he's just as having researched so much of Polish football history. It's his voice. I, I, I can hear it in my head just thinking about it. It's it's just so distinct and unique, uh, probably from because he's a Silesian. He's he's from Upper Silesia um, in the south of the country. They've got this very distinct accent, and it's just it's Jan Krzyzewski. It's it's you you know his voice a mile off. For people wondering why why we might have been drawn to him, as for me it was he has this amazing delivery because when the Polish team have the ball in their own half. It's very like so, and it's fine, normal. The minute they cross the halfway line, it goes, and the minute the shot goes in and the block from the Soviet player, it's it's fabulous. But it's the ending because you can hear them slapping each other's backs and clapping, and you can hear the sheer joy in his voice and almost a relief as well. Kieran, it was it was fab as a as a TV guy, Kieran, you must have appreciated it. Oh yeah, that that and the cutaways of the Brazilian fans to me made it uh, an utterly engaging broadcast. I I have to say, Ryan, it's been a pleasure. Uh, you'll come back for Mexico '86, surely. Oh yes, if you if you have me, yes. <laughs> we will absolutely have you back. You're on you're on our final pack now, Ryan. Thanks a million. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. France four, Northern Ireland one. Game two. It's France into the semi-finals. Uh, Northern Ireland are out. Uh, you know, I mean, when we were discussing there at Ryan, make about the possibilities of Boniac winning the semi-final and what might actually happen and how, how this out would all panned out. We were forgetting the fact that, you know, there are other games to be played. There are other teams in these uh, semi-finals. France are in the other side of the draw now, but they are in the groove. It was beautiful again to watch them. We were drooling over them in the Austrian game and they only scored one goal that day this mm. is a 4-1 win and look I tell you just pick a number you could pick a number between 4 and 10 and it could have been that many it, easy like easy I mean this is the first day of this World Cup that we have the Magic Square or the 1982 version of the Magic Square in midfield we have Platini we have Jerez we have Tigana and we have Rocheteau uh, and standing over to the side, we have Jengini. Just over there. Hello, Jengini. Come in. Jengini's like, can we make it a Pentagon? Like, no. Magic Square sounds better. It just it just pops. Magic Pentagon sounds a bit witchy or something, a bit occult. Sounds you stand like over there. Jengini is, the, is Pete Best. 
I'll tell you something though that Juve team for 83 is coming together oh very nicely Nightly. We need to How do could one, they let Liam Brady go? Oh, yeah. Stop, 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 but, stop. But we need to frame this chat right, Mick, because like there's, there's, there's little details and nuggets of the game to explain it, and then we just need to drool over France. So just quickly, I want to say Northern Ireland come in knowing they can win and get to the semi-finals. So France know they need to be careful here. Oh, yeah. This, they are, they're dead, red-hot favourites. Everyone's expecting them to cruise into it. But when Martin O'Neill plays a brilliant run through, Jerry Armstrong puts him in, He's onside. It's 1-0 Northern Ireland and it's bloody game on and the referee calls it offside. So, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, this is not the kind of... Damn VAR. Exactly. Beckon VAR. But like, <laughs> like, this is not an up... Like, this is not impossible for Northern Ireland. Like, this isn't like you're saying, oh, they have to win by two or three goals or more. No. They just have to win. No like, win. the French have to avoid defeat. Northern Ireland have to win by virtue of the fact that they have a two-all draw from the Austrian game. So they have something coming into the game. France have only won one nil against Austria, so it's not like they have to. So you're absolutely right. O'Neill plays one two with was a white side. Uh, no, white side does this amazing back heel to release O'Neill. Then he plays yeah. the one two with Armstrong. It's an Sorry, absolute. Sorry, Armstrong. You're right. It's, 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 it's a terrific. It's the best goal. They could have been one of the greatest ever goals from now, a Northern Ireland player. It has to be said that it's the first time they actually get a shot in on goal yeah, fair, in fair, the game, fair. 25, 26 minutes in. But it's ruled out for offside. Now we'll put it up on the old socials. Rob, I know you froze in the moment. I, I, I've done it. You, you froze the moment. You are right. I would say in 2022, that is definitely onside. In 1982, I would only ask if he's level with the last defender, he's offside. So, is he? I leave it to, I leave it to the people. But I tell you what, it's a great did finish. He, did he happen to have a limb just hanging it's, out oh, slightly like some of the knee, ones we've seen this year? I, and maybe a hair on his kneecap. But like he, it's a great uh, finish. You know that animation's going to come in and show that the hair is the other <laughs> I, side of the line. I know, I know. But if it's one nil, and the French could have ra- could have wobbled, yeah, they, they very well could have wobbled. Because as we keep saying, this is a team. We know what what the end result is going to be with this French team. But it is a team in development. Now it happens that this is the team. Now you know yeah, they've they've cracked now. it. But I tell you, if Northern Ireland go one up. It puts a different slant on things, but instead the goal is ruled out, and eight minutes later we have a glorious move for France to go one up. Everybody, all the names, all the names. So Northern Ireland are attacking. Uh, Marius Trezor, who has a g- fantastic game at centre half, man of the match, uh, brilliant, clears the cross and then gets the ball, and it's Trezor to Bossis to Tigana. To Gires, I know there are there are men and women now in their what maybe their late forties, mid fifties are starting to faint. Tigana, Gires, rush too, and then Platini. Platini makes on the edge of the box makes a great run to the byline, all the way to the byline, pulls it back for Gires again, who's continued his run, and it's a supreme finish past Pat Jennings, one nil, and you're like, I just want to go to France and kiss a person yes, and say your exactly. football team is fucking brilliant and, and, and yet if we come back to your hypothesis if Northern Ireland had got the first goal they would have been 20 Ulster buses stopping them at that yeah, point what? like I mean if it's 1-0 at that moment uh, who was let me see in the middle of that who got the ball Jures the first time Jures gets the ball he's getting drop kicked into the stand 
I tell you what was going to happen. Jim Platt would have come on as a sub and they would have played two goalkeepers. That's what would have happened. <laughs> 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 Hamilton it, off, Platt's on. <laughs> but it's just, that first half an hour is just France, French midfield on a roll. It's something, I don't know if you're noticing it or not, lads. It's something, definitely something I noticed. And I think it's something that Billy Joe could definitely get into on another day. The midfield play, more so than the striker play, has been absolutely superb. Like, the mid, it's the midfield players are the ones that are driving this World Cup. It's very them. reminiscent of 1990 in that respect. In that 1990, we had so much creativity in the midfield. We talked about all those number 10s. Yeah. But what we lacked was incision in the forward lines. Now, the difference here is there's a whole other level of flair to the midfield play. Yeah. Also, Russia Doe, he gets forward and scores... Uh, Keep going with the goal descriptions here. We need to just can we get can we dial in Billy Joe just for these moments? We, we missed him for this. Well, on. we could pretend we could pretend he's here and he's just at the back of the room. Hang on, <laughs> just give me a second here. I'm just going to go back a little bit. Hang on. Can you hear me back here? Yeah, we can. How Hello? good was that goal? Oh. Hello. <laughs> okay, so Rushto gets the ball right, forty yards from goal. And he's running, and he's running, and he's still running, and he's running, and it's unbelievable. <laughs> Everyone's favourite communist, everybody, into the into the box. No, the Northern Ireland defenders are. That just off sounded a like bit. a line from Hamilton the musical. Everyone's favourite communist, everybody. <laughs> yeah, sing along now. Uh, but the Northern Ireland defenders do back off a little bit. But would you blame them? He's going at such a speed, and he's he's, he's if you watch it back, lads. His close control is incredible. The ball is literally stuck to his foot. It's never. It's, he's not putting it out in front of himself. It's right on his on his toes. Chris Nickel backs, backs off him. Anyway, that doesn't matter. It's not Chris Nickel's fault. It's a blistering shot. Flies past Jennings at the near post. Two 0 Of course, in the tr- in the style of the time uh, on the English commentary with Gerald Sinstead and Ron Atkinson, there are question marks over a ball going in the near post. This ball is fucking flying. Like I mean, it's That's gone tough. past him before yeah. Jennings, and it's not Jennings's ah. injury. It's not Jennings being thirty-seven or whatever. It's a blisterer of a shot. I was listening to the commentary. Go wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for the near, yeah. post, near post comment. It's coming up now. God forbid we'll just enjoy a brilliant goal. Oh my God. Yeah, oh, Rosto was known at the time a, a very streaky, a very inconsistent player with San Diego and up and up the right. years. But he hits it. He hits it on this day. He's just he's perfect. Uh, he gets his second goal with twenty odd minutes to go. Another beauty. Um, yeah, little free kick just on the left hand side of the box. Uh, instead of swinging it in, Jures just just taps it to Rosto, who just suddenly accelerates and goes past two, uh, and again drills past Jennings on the old near post doesn't matter it's flying and in fact when he hits the ball Jimmy Nickel comes flying across in a sort of you know Dutchman and the flying trapeze move and tries to take him out but actually ends up injuring himself more um, and it's 3-0 and the Northern, this, I can like, see why Jurez was worn up in the Ballon d'Or this year because this is the game where I was like he's like he's all over this game like he gets the, he get, like oh yeah you're, 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 you're doing the timeline correctly here we have a goal back for Northern Ireland first no you're fine up. No, 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 you are absolutely right. This is your rest He's again. trying to put them out of the game altogether. <laughs> <laughs> but like, here's the thing, before I go on, because it is relevant to the next goal, there are things that I think Northern Ireland could have done better that might have put them under pressure. For example, the you buses. may remember. Pardon? Crosses. For example, the buses. <laughs> oh, the buses. Yes, the buses and also crosses. 
Um, you may remember that I, I made some remarks in relation to French goalkeepers in an earlier episode and their size, in particular Jean-Luc Etori's size. Petit Etori. Le Petit Etori. He's five it's foot nine. bonus extra on our DVD version of this podcast. It'll what be just you sure talking French goalies. It'll just be make repeatedly saying Le Petit Etori to that music. You know the French organ music? <laughs> <laughs> Le Petit Etori. Good work. Uh, just just stick some Serge Gainsbourg on the back of it would be grand um, that's who I meant <laughs> but he he flaps at so much here he flaps at so many crosses like I'm thinking to myself now Northern Ireland have a guy on the bench called Noel Brotherston who came on against played for Blackburn Rovers that's right Play, came on against Honduras he's a wingman he's a wingman and I just wonder if they'd put some width on their, t- on, on their game and maybe got a few more crosses in would they've got more joy because with 15 minutes left Norman Whiteside puts in the cross. Whiteside, by the way, who has by far and away his best game of the World Cup in this I match. I was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. As a 17-year-old. Let's repeat that. As a 17-year-old. I mean, phenomenal. Puts the cross in. Etori completely misses it. And Jerry Armstrong's at the back stick. Finishes it with a really, really good strike. It's not a header. It's a, it's a kind of a volley, isn't it? Or it's, a, it, it's a good finish anyway. Uh, it actually goes in off Billy Hamilton's ankle. But, you know, it's Armstrong's goal. Three Billy's one. goal. Billy's, well, Billy's kind of half claimed it the following day as well God bless him but it's 3-1 um, but again the French reaction is just to push on and they push on um, there's more chances there's a save for Whiteside alright from Etori but you know in the heel of the hunt so they're pushing on pushing on five minutes later uh, Pat Jennings makes a terrific again Rosto breaks through them brilliant run Jennings makes a good save corner uh, and again, they don't do they don't do a normal corner. They, they work it around to the other side of the pitch, from the left to the right. And Tegan has far right. And again, by the way, Platini to Jures to Tegan cross. Jures keeps running and he heads it home, totally unmarked. What Le petit Jures, you know, he's tiny. Chris Nickel, when you look at the re- when you look at the replay, it's Chris Nickel has let him go, uh, and he t- heads it in four one. And that's it. But you know what? It's not that Northern Ireland were disgraced. They were just absolutely blown away by a team at the peak of their powers. And can I just say, Mick, and like one of the things we've absolutely loved about Brazil is how much fun they're having on a football field. And I feel like the French replicate that. They're having fun. They are in such good form. No question about it. No question. They look like they're, as you said, they're enjoying it. Um, everything is coming off for them. The runs are working. Jerez, Platini. I mean, there was talk before this game, keep in mind, that Platini was injured in the previous game against Austria. That's where Tigana gets in. There's talk of not playing Platini. He has a, some strap on his leg. Some yeah. Just for his yeah, calf. These boys are playing beach soccer and Biarritz. They are. It's just, it's flowing out of them. It's absolutely flowing out of them. In fact, Hidalgo made a, Made it beautiful. I thought it was a beautiful uh, comment after the game. He said, I can hardly find the right words for victory. I told my players we would present quality football and if we lost, I would be responsible. And if we won, it will be because of them. And, you know, that's, that's like you know, the guy. kind of humility as well that's in their play. No more than what we mentioned about the Brazilians. I mean, the French work here when they have to work. And they, they you know, it's not, it's, not a, it's not a physical game in the way the Spanish game, the Northern Ireland-Spain game was or anything like that. But, there are moments where the, where the French have to have to stand up and, and do it, you know, and they do. Um, and the North, the, the North, they do as well as they can. It's it's funny, isn't it? These games are very much the forgotten games. Yeah. Know, Post-Spain. They exactly. Really it's just kind of like... And yeah, yet they, have, they determine the semi-finalists. They're a like good, in, 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 like, and this is the flaw in the format because 
in every World Cup subsequently, we remember all the quarterfinal winners and how they did it. Mm. The the small piece of arithmetic that's required here has robbed us of the memory of some great quarterfinals. And also you have some of the weirdest exits I've ever seen in a World Cup. So you go back to the Cameroonians and posing for a team photo when they got knocked out or, you know, the Soviets barely reporting it back home, looking fairly, what was the line we just heard there? Our, you know, as long as we didn't lose, like there's just so much strangeness. Even the Austrians in the previous game against Northern Ireland, the way they left the field, there was just a whole like lack of urgency at times. It's just confusing to me. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think the Irish... Look, once they had beaten Spain, that was it. That's you know, it, I mean, yes, in terms right. of their World Cup was made. I mean, even by the by the time we get to this game, whatever crowd and it wasn't a huge traveling support. Let's be honest that 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 followed them. But by the time they got to this game, it's down to the bare hundreds. I mean, the stadium is full of French people. They've all they 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 know now there's something happening, and they've all come in. Like Northern Ireland have more than outdone themselves, and as you say, they're within a win of making a World Cup semi final. That in itself is worth celebrating. And they do, to be fair. They have a right old piss up that night yeah. the following day. If yeah. this was Italia 90, they're lauded for making the quarterfinals of the World Cup. Abs- the complication of making it 12 teams means that... Where, where did they finish, actually? Uh, well, I think back home, Mick, as you've just researched, they get, they get that massive celebration, you know, on par with what we would have had in the Republic of Ireland, uh, what, eight years later? Well, it's delayed, Rob. It's delayed oh, because it's it's just one of these things. It's nothing to do with the security situation or anything like that. But the boys want a holiday. <laughs> boys want a holiday. The boys want a holiday. And they need to go away. And most of them, as you can imagine, they fly back to London. Most of them are based in England anyway or Scotland. So they go away for their holidays. And they eventually come back to Northern Ireland in in the November when they have a few inter- couple of internationals. I think they played West Germany around that time. And the they, they do the open bus parade and all the rest of it. And it's great. But that night, like, they go back to the hotel and they break out the champagne as they were accused of doing by the Spanish some, some weeks previously. They finally do break out the champagne this time. And they have a good old, they have a good old night. Um, we mentioned money previously remember we were talking about whatever money the, the north bonuses, like, bonuses, bonuses and all that it was a bit of hassle before the tournament bonuses and how they'd work it out anyway they ended up as we said at the time agreeing that it would be divided evenly among the players they made two hundred and forty thousand pounds between them so they all got a nice little chunk um just out of curiosity lads in case you're wondering jerry armstrong socks from the spanish game they yeah. ended up in carrick fergus uh you can put 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 a lyric to that if you like uh and jimmy nichols shorts ended up in carrick fergus as well he's spanish please, please tell me they're in the castle <laughs> they should be under glass um UTV, and, and the, the number of times i've been in carrick fergus in recent years <laughs> working at matches and not knowing that i How could go and do? find jerry armstrong socks apparently a couple of fans it was a group of fans were over and they managed to Gain access to the players after the Spanish games and they came away with Jerry Socks and Jimmy Short. So there you go. I don't know how they charmed them off, them, but there you have it. UTV were actually inundated with calls on the night of the French game, or the afternoon, I should say, of the French game, about Jackie Fullerton, the poor fella, being too negative, they said. Imagine. Who knows what he was saying? Jackie had bigger um, ambitions. He could see a World Cup champions here in this group. I think he could, you know. I think he could. One other guy decided he didn't want to play on the Sunday. That was another thing. Johnny Jemison from Glentoran was a born-again Christian. He was right. meant to be on the bench that day. I said, I can't. My my religious beliefs prohibit me from playing on a Sunday. So he stepped back. So he could have joined Felix in that rare club of 
domestically based players who would have played in a World Cup? He possibly well indeed could, but you know, that honour is Felix's Felix first. Right, team of the day, team of the day. It's, I'm, go, I'm going to lead the team of the day by saying it's France by default and we take players out if we have Agreed. to take them out. Norman Whiteside's in. Yeah. I thought I, so I there have, was quite good. Are you, are you, are you telling me Gangini's out again? <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I would, just to start in goals, would we put, I thought Dasayev actually, in a terrible game, Dasayev did make some saves. Oh, I, I was going to say that I think Dasayev may ultimately end up being in our team of the tournament. I think wow. so. I think so. Um, okay, he's in. So on your basis, Robin, I wouldn't just, I wouldn't argue. Amaros is a shoe-in. Trezor yeah. is a shoe-in. Uh, Bossis is a shoe-in, I would say. Very left back. I'm glad you mentioned him, yes. I thought Zamuda was good. Okay. Yeah. But I would argue, I would take any other... No, I would, no, I, I like your thinking of Zamuda. We'll put him in there as well. So that's it, that's your back covered. There's your back four. And now it's just literally... The French or midfield. Four French, French midfielders. With the possible yeah. exception of Gerard Soler, who did not play badly. He had some great moments, but I just want to put Whiteside in because I don't right. play well. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Platini, Gerard, Tigana, Rocheteau, Whiteside. That's five. Yeah, that's and it. one man up front. That's a problem. Did you mention Gengini? Are we putting them out again? Gengini. We, we really don't. I mean. Jerry Armstrong, yeah. Uh, oh, uh, there we go. I've, Armstrong I've, I've, was superb. You're right. Jerry Armstrong again. You're bang on. You're bang on. That's your team. Dasayev, Amaros, Trezor, Zamuda, Bossis, Whiteside, Platini, Tigana, Gires, Rosto, and Jerry Armstrong. Let's play out with the Northern Ireland team. Just having their moment together. A bit of sing song. Having a, have, having a bit of a come all ya. Yeah. Come all ya. Yeah. This should have been their World Cup single. Amen to that. spent I asked her for credit she answered me nay such a custom as yours I can have any day and it's no day never 